Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Oh, look at my front butt. Salutations. Nice to be here, Stephen. Thank you very much. And we have a special treat for our guest tonight. He's been a producer, a director, an Academy. He was involved in the Academy Award winning nominated film. Heck, he's even a horror historian now who I met through. Well, he did all the extras in the new Blu-ray for. One of the best TV horror movies of the 70s, though that is kind of redundant. (laughs) TV horror movies of the 70s were just gold. And here he is, Sam Irvin. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve and Carl. This is is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Don't you agree? Me and Carl are that position, too. But don't you agree that the 70s were like the greatest era in TV horror movies? Yes, it was. It was quite. It, it, so many great things came on in the seventies. From my favorite, Frankenstein: The True Story, which you mentioned, has just come out on Blu-ray, and then you know all the way up through um, the, the Stephen King miniseries of, of um, the that James Mason Man. also starred in. Salem's oh, Lot. Lot, yeah. Salem's Lot. Yeah. Absolutely. I was like a teenager when I got into horror film, Sam. I was like, why was I so scared of movies, of the <laughs> horror films? And then I got a hold of the 70s ones I watched when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so true. I was 17 when Frankenstein, the True Story, was aired in 1973 on NBC. And I was freaking blown away. I couldn't believe what they got away with in prime time, you know, ripping the head off of Jane Seymour and, you know, all kinds of stuff. It was just like, holy crap. And that was the water cooler 
talk at school for, you know, the next three months. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah I, I'm just a, a little I'm just a little younger than you, Sam, and, and uh so I think I was fifteen. In fact I know I was fifteen and like yeah, I, I was just hooked at that one. That is such a <laughs> great, great miniseries. Seriously. And I still yeah. think it's probably the best version and the most faithful version of Frankenstein that's out there. Well, I certainly think it's one of the best. I don't think it's particularly faithful. The title, Frankenstein, the True Story, wants you to believe it's faithful, but that was just an NBC title that they gave it. uh, They changed the title when it aired, you know, a couple months before it aired. It was actually called Dr. Frankenstein when the screenwriters and the producer and everybody were doing it, and it was filmed under the title Dr. Frankenstein. They actually intended it to to be quite different from the book and we're really intentionally trying to make things different than had ever been done in the other movies as well as in the book. Like for instance, the creature played by Michael Sarazen when he's brought to life, he's actually beautiful at the beginning and that had never been done and it was never that way in the book or any of the movies up to that point and, uh, and then eventually his skin starts to deteriorate and he becomes, you know, quite a horrific looking guy. But um but that's just one of the many examples in the film that they that they took in a whole new different direction. They also were really uh, inspired by the James Whale movies of Frankenstein, the original with Karloff and Bride of Frankenstein and the great character in Bride of Frankenstein, Doctor Pretorius, played by Ernest Thesiger, um, who was one of the first gay characters in mainstream cinema, they very much yeah. wanted um, to, they based the James Mason character in Frankenstein, the true story, who was called Dr. Polidori. They based that character on Pretorius and actually in early drafts of the script, he's called Dr. Pretorius. And uh, so, you know, they're, they really, you know, were definitely not doing a faithful version of Mary Shelley. They were, they were doing a whole reimagining and mixing it in with, with different things from films that they had loved of it, but still wanted it to be fresh and different. Um, when they bring the creature to life, they purposely did not have it late at night with lightning and kites. They did it during broad daylight and had it with solar energy. Um, you know, things like that just made it really fresh and, and new and different for, for a new generation. And there are so many metaphors finding Frankenstein, the true story. But you mentioned Pretorius. He has one of my favorite lines ever that didn't mean much to me as a kid. But once I learned about gay culture, when Pretorius goes, come out of the closet, dear boy. It's a lot nicer out here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I love it when Minnie, the housekeeper, played by Una O'Connor, comes in and, and tells Dr. Frankenstein, there's a very queer gentleman at the door. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the metaphors of Frankenstein are true story like uh, when when the monster is perfect, his father accepts him. But as soon as he has any flaws, his father yeah. turns his back on him. Yeah. And you're calling him his father, Dr. Frankenstein. Of course, his father's played in quotations by you know, 21-year-old Leonard Whiting, who was 
you know, very stunning. Uh, he was famous for playing Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, Zeffirelli version. And um, and I think, you know, if you have your gaydar out and you're looking for the gay subtext in the film, the relationship between Dr. Frankenstein and the creature has, has a lot of homoerotic um, undertones to it um, that was quite intentional. As a, as a gay kid, a closeted gay kid, when I saw it at 17, when I was 17, I was picking up on, on a lot of that, and I was like, hmm, I wonder if I'm reading more into it than what was really intended. But as I got older and was interviewing people involved in the film, including the co-screenwriter, Don Bacardi, um, he said, oh, my God, yes, we very much intended, we all, you know, we were loading it up with gay subtext. The, the two writers were lovers and gay. It's Christopher Isherwood, who's no longer with us, but Don Bacardi's still alive. And um, they are, Christopher Isherwood is very famous, of course, for writing the Berlin stories that Cabaret was based on. And he also wrote um, Single Man that Colin Firth uh starred in the film version and was nominated for Best Actor. And um, they were a very famous gay couple, and they loaded it up with it. The producer of the film, Hunt Stromberg Jr., was also gay. They called themselves the Lavender Hill Mob because they were trying to get away with as much as they could get away with, and, uh, you know, under the radar. That's a wonderful that. story. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't it great? Yeah. yeah. And, that's um, always wondering, the, why wasn't Frankenstein a true story mentioned and the celluloid closet. Yeah, well, I'm surprised at that, too. And I actually knew Vito Russo, who wrote Celluloid Closet. He was a friend of mine back in the 80s when I lived in New York. And, um, of course, he's unfortunately no longer with us. He was one of the, the many who who um, were taken during the whole AIDS play. Absolutely. But, um, I, I was also but, there, and I knew I knew Vito, too. I, I met him a couple times through a very close friend of mine, Richard Wandel. Yeah, such a great guy, and he he would have these great. He collected 16 millimeter film, and he would have friends come over and sit in his living room, apart at his apartment in New York, and we'd watch films. And he um, he was a very big fan of Bride of Frankenstein, and actually does state in the book that Dr. Pretorius was one of the first gay characters in mainstream cinema, and he was a big fan of that. But um, yeah, I don't know why. I, I don't remember even discussing Frankenstein: The True Story with him. But he definitely should have been on the bandwagon with that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, and the quote, uh, Ernest Steiger. He asked uh, James Well once. You probably know this story. He said, "James, dear boy, why don't you ever write any gay roles in your movies?" But I do, and I always cast you in them. Ain't it the truth Ain't it the truth But um, anyway Just so your listeners will know um, Frankenstein the True Story Is literally just coming out um, uh, March 24th Which is this coming Tuesday um, In case you're listening to this Down the road on (laughs) We're talking about 2020 And it's um, being put out by Shout Factory Through their Screen Factory division and it's I and I was lucky enough to be asked to do all of the extras for it. I do the movie is, is a little over three hours long because it was shown in two parts over two nights. And when you take away all the commercials, it, it, it was about three hours. And I do the audio commentary, which is an epic three-hour audio commentary. It's long, long with every 
piece of trivia and everything you can imagine stuffed in there. And then I also do um, live, you know, new interviews with Jane Seymour, who plays the female creature, with Leonard Whiting, who plays Dr. Frankenstein, and with Don Bacardi, the co-screenwriter. And, uh, and those extras are really pretty interesting to see as well. So, um, And you can order it on Amazon. You can order it directly through Shout Factory's website. Um, there's also a store here in Los Angeles where I live called Dark Delicacies, and they specialize in all things horror. And they're selling it on their website, and I've gone in and signed all the copies. So if you're looking for a, ver- a version with having my signature on it, you can order it directly from them. And they're a mom-and-pop uh, store that needs your help during this little crisis we find ourselves in. So, um, so I recommend that, too. It's, it's uh, www.darkdel.com and dark, for dark delicacies. And I wish that they could include the picture of how you were dressed while you were signing it. You look perfect for signing Frankenstein, your true story. <laughs> I was in a I was in a face mask, uh, and I was and I just so happened that the gloves, the rubber gloves I was able to find were black, and I suddenly realized, oh my God, I look like Doctor Polidori, the James Mason character in Frankenstein, the True Story, because his hands have been destroyed in experiments, and he wears black gloves. <laughs> so anyway, it was kind of it was a funny photo op. I'm glad that this nice. is not DVD. I don't think it has. It has the actual bumpers, and that's hard to find on well, any television yeah. miniseries release. Yes, this has uh, it, it has. First of all, there's a uh, James Mason introduction where he shows a ton of clips uh, from the movie. And, you know, spoilers be damned. I mean, this is what ran on NBC the night it was first shown. And they spent like five minutes basically spoiling everything. But as, you know, we were all agog looking at it. And when you see all the clips from it, we're like, oh, my God, we'll never change the channel now. This is going to be incredible. So that's all there. And that's been on a few of the DVD releases prior to this. But um, what what has never been on um, any of the American releases are at the end of part one, we have the previews for part two, and they're, and they're narrated by James Mason, exactly how you saw it on that night. And then at the, uh, then we also have the very beginning of part two starts off with the recap of part one <laughs> that's narrated by Leonard Whiting, just as it was shown. And uh, so that, it's pretty cool to you kind of have the, the full experience of what it was like to see it back then. Nice. I, getting into a time machine and going back, man. I mean, that's exactly what it, I I remember seeing that. So I know I saw those those, those previews and, and bumpers and all that. That's just amazing that you were able to find yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, well, the inter- the other interesting thing about the James Mason introduction, originally the screenwriters, and they and they shot this as well, there was a very showy introduction like there is at the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein, where Mary Shelley is, is, is talking to Lord Byron and, and, her, and her friends about um, how they challenged, in real life, they challenged each other to write ghost stories, and so she's having those discussions with her friends and that's 
what ended up she ended up going off and writing Frankenstein and and uh, Dr. Pal- uh, the real life Dr. Polidori, who was Lord Byron's lover and physician, he went off and wrote va- Vampire V A M P Y R E, a book that was that predated Dra- Bram Stoker's Dracula by about seventy five years. It's considered the first vampire novella ever written. And um, yeah, good old Varney's so, forgotten. Yeah, <laughs> but that even came after this. So. Um, but at any rate, uh, there was an introduction, and it had the actors who the the actress Nicola Paget who played Elizabeth Frankenstein in Frankenstein: The True Story. She played Mary Shelley. James Mason played Doctor Polidori, the real life one, and then morphed into the Doctor Polidori character in the film. Uh, David McCallum played Lord Byron, and then became Doctor Clerval in the movie. And Leonard Whiting played uh, Mary's fiance, Percy Viss Shelley, uh, in the in this prologue, and then morphed into Doctor Frankenstein. And so NBC decided that it was too esoteric and too many minutes were being wasted on on you know this little picnic in Switzerland, and it wasn't getting into any of the juicy horror stuff. And so they scuttled that introduction. The, uh, there are lots of photographs of it. The footage does not exist, as far as I can tell. Um, it, it it did exist at one time, but um, but we can't find it in the vaults anywhere, unfortunately. But they took away that introduction, and in its place, they they filmed they quickly filmed uh, an introduction that has James Mason in modern day London taking us to the graveyard where Mary Shelley is buried. Well, (laughs) I found out that that particular cemetery is not the cemetery where Mary Shelley is buried. And the tombstone he shows us was a fabrication of the art department on the movie, (laughs) fake tombstone. And it looks nothing like the real Mary Shelley tombstone. And, so, you know, they're beginning to film that they're calling Frankenstein the true story by taking us to a bogus cemetery and a bogus tombstone. I mean, it was just, uh, the irony is just so crazy. But uh, but but then after showing us Shelley's grave, then he introduces, you know, about five minutes of clips of the movie and, you know, to whet everybody's appetite to make sure no one would change the station. And it, and it, it seemed to do the trick back then. <laughs> But okay, here's the big it, question so. for you, Sam. Which did you like better, Haunted Honeymoon or Ken Russell's Gothic? <laughs> I wow, that's a good question. I I think I enjoyed Ken Russell's Gothic only because it's just he's just such a crazy filmmaker and so stylish that I think it's you know it's just more audacious in a way. Um, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of either one, to be honest. I don't think that they've ever done that. Uh, you know, basically what we're talking about is those films are are about Mary Shelley and the night that they all sat around and and in Switzerland and Lake Geneva and, and sort of challenged each other to write write horror stories. And um, I still think it, it, it there's a film to be made. That, that could be better than all of those. And there was a recent production of Mary Shelley that I didn't care for either. I just I, I feel like it's great right material, but it just hasn't been done perfectly yet. Which did you like better? 
I like gossip. To me, Haunted Honeymoon was too much early 90s teens romping around in Victorian clothes type movies. Yeah, I agree with you. Yep. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I'll take Ken Russell over anyone, even if it's a flawed Ken Russell film, because yeah. even his flawed films are a lot more interesting than most. But did you know that yeah. they used the, the Mary Shelley Polidori uh, uh, and, and Lord Byron in Doctor Who a couple weeks ago? I did hear that, and I'm dying to see that episode. That's incredible. Yeah, they just they used it like two or three weeks ago. Uh, wow. Um, very interesting. Yes. Well, so you know what? That's always died. that's always fodder. That night, we all imagine what that night would be. Yeah. You know, and that's why no, you have so many different takes on it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really right material. So. Oh, absolutely. But anyway, I don't no want to. Uh, the other thing that I just want to mention before we change the subject from Frankenstein: The True Story is that I also. Um, I, when I saw it at the age of 17, I um, was such a horror film fan. I was already editing and publishing my own horror film fanzine called Bizarre when I was, you know, grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. And as a high school graduation present, I bamboozled my parents into sending me to London so I could interview a whole bunch of Hammer film folks like. Lee and Peter Cushing and everybody, and um, and I actually interviewed Christopher Lee on the set of Man with the Golden Gun, if you can believe it. And but oh oh trip, oh, I, you you just made me you just made me like envy you for the rest of my fucking life. That's amazing. <laughs> well, we'll come we'll come back to that because I do have a, a really funny story about that. But um, but I also I I got a hold of Jane Seymour and I had dinner with her. In London, that uh, in in '74, and I interviewed her for my fanzine Bizarre, and I put Frankenstein: The True Story on the cover, and so my obsession was really was really started big with that. And then about 40 years later, I got contacted by the editor of Little Shop of Horrors magazine, and he knew uh, he knew that I loved that movie, and he said, "Listen, we want to do a, you know coverage on that, the making of it." would you want to do it? And I said, I'll do it, but I have to have the whole magazine because I have so much to, to say and to, to do. And so he basically gave me the keys to, to the castle. And I guest edited an entire issue of the magazine, all devoted to Frankenstein, the true story. It came out a couple years ago and it won the Rondo award for best article of the year for my making of, which I'm really, really proud of. And it was just all labor of love. And I got Anne Rice to do the foreword for the magazine because Frankenstein, the true story is the movie that inspired her to write interview with the vampire, which launched her entire literary career. And we got um, Mark Gatiss, who was the co-creator of the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch and he, and he co created and co-produced that new uh, Dracula um, that, that was a three-parter and he's also an actor he was um, he was Sherlock's brother in that Sherlock series and he was Renfield in the Dracula series anyway we got, he wrote a whole essay on queer Franken called queer Frankenstein about the gay subtext um, we had it, it, we did interview I did 
exclusive interviews for the magazine with Jane Seymour, David McCallum, uh, Leonard Whiting, Nicola Paget, and about 20 other people who are still alive. And um, that magazine is available directly from Little Shop of Horrors magazine. And if you can go to littleshopofhorrors.com, and shop is spelled the old-fashioned way, S-H-O-P-P-E. And um, so it's a great companion uh, to have with the, with the Blu-ray. The magazine is 120 pages, and there are 400 photos. And if you can believe it, I'm even expanding that into a book that's going to have even more pictures and more text. So the obsession continues. <laughs> nice. And even though it's very, nice. very, very, very flawed, it's sad that the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein is the only one to ever use the proper ending to Shelley's book. Yeah, yeah. I was not a big fan of that version, to be honest with you. I um, I was had my hopes up. It had some great people in it, from Robert De Niro and Brownell playing Doctor Frankenstein, and you know it, it it had a great pedigree, and it looked you know it looked pretty expensive and all of that, but somehow it just didn't. Uh, I just don't think it hit its mark. Except for the last ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, the the uh, you had mentioned, I think, that you had seen some of my other film, some of the films that I've directed. Yeah. And uh, we should talk about that. We don't want to bore. Well, you know, maybe you can clear up the mystery that I've always had. Yeah. Why is Brian De Palma's home movies, which you worked on, so hard to find and has never gotten a DVD or Blu-ray release? Isn't that crazy? I it's so crazy to me. Yes, on uh, Home Movies was a film that I associate produced and production managed when I was fresh out of college. And uh, it starred Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon and Garrett Graham, who played Beef and Phantom of the Paradise, and Vincent Gardenia. And just had this incredible cast. It's a really fun movie. Beautiful score by Pino DiNaggio, who did. Carry and Press to Kill and Blowout and a bunch of De Palma's movies. And, uh, but it got released at the time by United Artists Classics, and I don't know why it has never come out on DVD or Blu-ray. It's just totally crazy, and it really needs to be. And, uh, and I hope it will be. It, 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 it really has got to do it because, I mean, De Palma, you know, if, if you're a De Palma completist, you gotta have it. So anyway, I hope I hope someday. Yeah, it's like when uh, something weird video released the Weird World of Weird Volume Two. I jumped on it immediately as soon as I seen it had Wotan's Wake on it. Oh wow, that's a rare one for sure. And if you haven't yeah. seen yeah, it, crazy. imagine William Finley, the Phantom of the Paradise, as a monster yeah. who's running around the campus in love with a hat rack. Who gets mad when he changes it into a woman, then he tries to turn it back into a hat rack. Wow. That's yeah, Okay, we we are we William Finley fans. We should let you know that. Okay. We worship at the yeah. altar of William Finley. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Bill uh Bill Finley was really became a really good friend of mine when I was working for 
all that. I was also a huge fan of his, especially because of his playing the Doctor and Sisters, and of course the lead in Phantom of the Paradise is the ultimate. But um, I did a short film called Double Negative, and it was uh, in the Sundance Film Festival in 1985, and it was about a 20-minute short. It was about a film director horror film director who's making a low-budget horror film called Coat Hanger Massacre, and his two sleazy producers decide that if that they will make more money if they steal the negative from the lab and collect the insurance than completing the film. And the leading lady, who happens to be their secretary, <laughs> the leading lady in the film within the film, um, she gets wind of this, overhears their plotting, and she scrambles over to the director's house, you know, apartment and tells him, and they team up to steal the negative first and put dummy negative in there and then have a, set up a camera to catch them in the act of, of stealing the, uh, the negative. And, uh, and so that they can blackmail them into finishing the film. And so, Anyway, this little 20-minute short um, has Bill Fenley in it playing one of the two sleazy producers. The other producer is Wayne Knight, who is Newman on Seinfeld. And I oh, named that's wonderful. Them, I named them Max. Their characters are Max and Milt, uh, a little nod to Max J. Rosenberg and Milton Sabatsky, who are the heads of Amicus Productions, which was the sort of competitor of Hammer Films back in the day. And um, and the film director is played by Bill Randolph, who was the cab driver in Dress to Kill, the one that slams his door into uh, into Michael Caine in drag when Nancy Allen's trying to get away. And um, right. and he was also in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. And uh, and then I have a flashback scene where the director is this prodigy kid who's like eight years old, already in, in graduate, you know, film school in college, winning, a, winning an award. And we had Justin Henry from Kramer versus Kramer, who was still a little kid back then playing that. So it was really this cool cast of, of people. And, and Bill Finley had just a really fun time doing the role. And he also, um, he and his wife, Susan, were also writers and, I hired them to rewrite a screenplay on a film that I produced called The First Time, and De Palma served as a creative consultant on it, and it was from New Line Cinema, and it was sort of a coming-of-age comedy, and it had Wallace Shawn and uh, Wendy Jo Sperber and some, you know, familiar faces from from that era, and... um, but, uh, but Bill was involved with that, too. And uh, so, anyway, I I just absolutely adored him. It, it just broke my heart when he passed away a few years ago. His, um, his wife, Susan, I just had lunch with her about a year ago. She came out here. I, I, I live in Los Angeles now, but she still lives in New York. And, and she introduced me to their son, and he he's so so much like his dad. It was, it was just, it was great to, to kind of make all, you know, to see everybody. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I like you. I'm a huge fan of, of Bill Finley. Well, about a few years ago, uh, uh, Doc Fudge, a guy who was 
a co-host with us. Remember, Carl? He was like, I'm a Rocky Horror fan. There's not many more. And we're like, oh, we're going to do a watch next week. Okay, what up? <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise. Yep. And then just, boom, his mind got blown throughout the film, didn't it, Carl? Yes, it did. I'll be right back, guys. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, you did the Oblivion films, too, which I found just the first one was insanely fun. Thank you. I want to get your horror story, and the movie makes more sense now that you include all these old nods like you did in the movie. Yep. Well, like it's, Julie um, Newmar's Miss Kitty. Yes. And, and George Takei plays the town drunk. I loved, was that um, in I the script, or was that a line he made up with the Jim Beam bottle? No, I, 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 I encouraged that. Beam <laughs> <That was not laughs> me up, Jim! He, yeah, he comes out of the, the saloon with a bottle of Jim Beam and, and in a drunken voice says, Beam me up, Jim. And uh, you know it was little nods like that that I just had to put in there. I couldn't, I couldn't resist. And uh, and when you know when it came time to cast Miss Kitty, who was a female alien who runs the saloon, it's like we got to get Julie Newmar. <laughs> and she was totally into it, and she was happy to do you know the perfect kind of you know delivery on on things. And um, you know she. We were going to dress her in a black cat suit, and she said, "No, let's take you know, let's let's do leopard, you know, let's let's switch it up a little bit." So we so she does, she's in a leopard cat suit for for some of the time, and uh, well, you know what, Billy Newmar in any cat suit is going to be good. I I don't have a problem That's with right. that. <laughs> That's exactly right. And we plus, it's a gunsmoke reference too. Hey, two references <laughs> in one role. Boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we shot those films, Oblivion 1 and 2, back-to-back in Romania. And uh, it was done for Full Moon, Charlie Band's company, but it was when it was during a short window of time when he had actually decent money from Paramount uh, to, you know, to budget these things. I mean, it was, still was a very low-budget film, but not as low-budget as some of Charlie's other films. And uh, so... Uh, it was just incredible. It was my third film. Uh, Charlie had seen my first film, Guilty as Charged, with Rod Steiger. And, oh, I was uh, really talking loved. about that. I love yeah. that movie. We'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, and so he he trusted me to do whatever I wanted to do on Oblivion. And uh, so it, I had a great, great time working on those films. And um, I brought in uh, Isaac Hayes to the cast. He plays a, a bartender, and he had been in in my first film, Guilty as Charged, as well as my second film, Acting on Impulse. So he was kind of like a uh, you know a repertory player, I guess you'd call it, and, and was doing all my films back in those days. And uh, and we had brought in Carl Stryken, who was. Lurch in the Adams Family movies and the Giant and Twin Peaks, and he plays the Undertaker. Gaunt is his name, and he has extra sensory perception to know ahead of time when someone's about to die, and he just suddenly shows up out of nowhere, and as they're falling down from a gunshot or whatever, he 
he runs into frame and and sort of grabs them before they hit the ground. <laughs> and uh, and we had Maxwell Caulfield in the second one playing a bounty hunter and um, just a just and oh and Meg Foster playing the cyborg deputy with her with her incredible eyes. We didn't have to do any special effects to make her look look otherworldly or or like a robot. Um, it was just just a lot of fun. Loved making those films. Okay, for a curveball, so, one quickly telling the story about where you seen Carl on stage, Carl, and then the one film of him that you wanted to ask about. Okay, you probably wouldn't expect someone. Well, who to did ask. I see on stage? Well, wait, wait a second. Who did I see on stage? Uh, Lurch, Carl Strickland. Oh, oh, okay. So, oh, no, yeah, no, I'll tell that story. Never mind, skip that. That was Ted Cassidy, exactly. Well, just throwing okay, the curveball about the movie. <laughs> okay. Well, well, two things. Uh, so, Stephen, would you go see a movie that had this cast in it? Rod Steiger, Isaac Hayes, Zelda Rubenstein. No, the other one, uh, the sequel to the movie No, but you first love. I want to go here, since we were talking about it. Mitch okay. Pileggi. You know, I mean, that to me, I remember seeing this on, on um, HBO, I think it was. I didn't know anything about it. And and it just, I really liked it because it just was just over the top enough. It wasn't too silly, but it was it was fun, and I really enjoyed well, it. And I think Isaac Hayes gives a hell of a performance in this. So does Steiger. I agree with you. I agree with you. We're talking about Guilty as Charged. It was my first yeah. film. It was around 1991. Uh, first film as a director, and. Uh, it was it was a, a dark comedy, I guess you'd call it, a very very dark comedy, about a, a vigilante played by Steiger who kidnaps murderers who've gotten off, like like OJ type <laughs> situation, and he kidnaps them, puts them on his own private death row, and then fries them in his electric chair. <laughs> Thus the title, <laughs> guilty. Yeah, I know charged. that one. <laughs> And, uh, oh, it's so much so, fun! And there are several, uh, got, you know, several criminals that have been put on death row and are going to get their their just desserts. And not about a year or two before, um, there had been this film called Shocker with Mitch Pileggi, and he played, uh, you know, when he gets fried in an electric chair and and comes back, it sort of energizes him into this sort of creature, undead creature who is, you know, going around killing people. And uh, and I thought, you know what? What if we could get Mitch Pileggi in this and we could fry him again? <laughs> and so we, we contacted his agent who contacted him, and he, he just was so thrilled to come and be able to work with Rod Steiger. He was, he was totally game to do it. And uh, but we had a great time, and it was written by well, Charlie you know, but, Gale, okay, who was the brother of Bob Gale, who who wrote, co-wrote and produced all the Back to the Future movies and stuff. So, um, it 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 was just an, another really really great project to work on. Yeah, it's it, the the other thing too is you could just tell everyone is having a blast. Yeah. Everyone's just having we a did, good totally time with did. that. 
And, and, and if you see that in the film, that just makes it more enjoyable to watch. Seriously. Yeah. No, we had a we had a, a great great fun on that, and just I was just trying to put in any kind of electrical imagery or references to to as as you know very um, tongue in cheek, over the top symbolism and stuff like Steiger. The car that he drives is a is an Electra. So at one point he puts the body in the trunk and slams the trunk, and I have this real close up shot of the back end of the car on the Electra logo as it pulls away, and and then there's another point where we have an angle up on the street sign, and it's it's the it's the corner of Franklin and Edison, you know, <laughs> just silly stuff like that, and. Uh, it, it was it was just great. We we had a fun with it, and the whole dungeon, of course, I designed. We built it as a set, and it was all designed to have sort of German expressionism, and and bring in you know the the style of the of Franken the James Well Frankenstein laboratory scenes and things like that, and. Um, I was really pleased when some of the reviews came out and actually compared me as a director of the film to the style of James Whale and to the style of the Dr. Fives movies and stuff like that. And I was, I was like, Oh my God, you have no idea how, <laughs> how that makes me feel good. So, um, you know, it's, well, it's uh, when it was shown in that or world. I've seen it on uh, Joe Bob's drive in theater. Yeah. He compared it to Pete Walker's house of whipcord. I did not know that. That's hilarious. <laughs> it was on his TMC show back when he, back before he did Monster Vision. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I'll tell you another story. Is um, this this is interesting? Lauren Hutton is also in it, and she plays the wife of a politician, and she's supposed to be very glamorous and very rich. And we had a very tight budget, and she wasn't really uh, – we didn't have the money to really dress her fancy the way it needed to be. And she said, listen, I'm just going to call up my friend Bob Mackey, the famous you know, wardrobe designer who did, did, you know, the Cher show. And, you know, all, you know he, he, he's just known for all of his glitzy stuff. And he said, you know, come on over. So I go over with Lauren to his, to his studio and she gets up on the little podium in front of the mirrors and he re, he brings in this whole rack of, you know, a hundred different gowns and stuff for her to try on. She just took off all of her clothes, stripped naked, <laughs> completely naked, just standing there, and he just started dressing her in different things. And within an hour, we had, you know, we had wardrobed her for the entire film. He let us have all this stuff for free. It was incredible, and uh, but anyway, it was it was quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, and you were probably sitting there thinking, "Good God, big budget films would be hating me right now." Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we've gotten you know Academy Award winner and Emmy Award winner Bob Mackie to do the wardrobe for her for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's and we a great also story. had you know also in the. In the movie was Heather Graham, who was um, just getting started at that time. She had just done Drugstore Cowboy, 
And uh, she came in and auditioned for it and gave an incredible audition. So it was one of her early films. And uh, so that was really fun working with her, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Drugstore Cowboy. Yeah. She played the she played the a junkie who ended up dying and they they stuffed her body up in the in I guess like at a, a air conditioning duct or something yeah, the ceiling. Yeah. Why'd you put right. a hat on the bed for? It's bad luck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and there's only and one then, reason Carl went to see it when it first came out, right, Carl? Uh, why would that be? Because Uncle Bill was in it, as you call him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, William Burroughs. I have always called him Uncle Bill. <laughs> ah, yep, yep. And what was that sequel so, that he worked on, uh, Sam, that... You was like, oh God, I gotta ask him about this. I gotta ask him about this. Well, said, I'll, I'll, I'm going there right now. Okay. Going there right now. So I saw a film uh, on HBO when I was growing up that that had an impact on me, and I loved it very, very much. And as I'm going through your uh, uh, filmography and your producing credits, I see that you actually executive produced. Richard Benner's sequel to Outrageous. Now, I love Outrageous, and I do remember seeing this. But tell me a little bit about working w- working with that, with Richard Benner and, and with uh, of the sequel, and how did that come about? Be- and, and also, just so everyone knows, Outrageous was one of the first LGBTQ uh, uh, films that specifically... Uh, dealt, I guess the correct term now would be transgender, uh, um, and um, at that time it would be uh, 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 drag queen. But uh, yeah. a film that, that was for the first LGBTQ film I ever saw that wasn't fucking depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the first one came yeah. out in the 70s, and it was uh, it starred Craig Russell, who um, – was in real life a you know star he was he was like the RuPaul of his day and very very popular in the in the um, among gay community and traveled and toured with a, his comedy you know routines and stuff and he was really known for impersonating different famous you know actresses like Mae West Betty Davis Judy Garland you know the whole um, the whole kind of list. And the first film was a kind of a cult favorite. It was very popular in the art house market. And then about, gosh, at least 10 years later, um, they got around to wanting to do a sequel. And it was called Too Outrageous, (laughs) T-O-O, Outrageous. And uh, Craig Russell was going to star in it, and they came to a company that I was working for at that time, a distribution company called Spectra Film, and we were dealing with a lot of art house films, and our our most successful one was The Fourth Man with the Paul Verhoeven film. And we were starting to get into production and dipping our toe into, you know, funding movies and and co-funding them with other partners. And this was one of those, and it was being co-financed through uh, Telefilm Canada and and a couple of other partners. 
And the, uh, the problem was that Craig Russell by then was a hopeless drunk, <laughs> and we couldn't get him insured. He was not reliable, and he had, you know, shown up drunk to some of his, you know, his stand-up shows, and, and things would have to get canceled and whatnot, and he just had a terrible reputation because of his drinking. And so nobody wanted to, you know, to finance the film or, you know, put money into it unless it could be insured and no insurance company was going to insure him. So for a long time, we were looking for other uh, drag queens who could take over this role in the sequel. And we traveled to different gay clubs all over the U.S. And we saw every, every drag queen who was famous in those days. And, uh, but every, you know, they were all, they all said, I don't feel comfortable doing this role. It's Craig Russell. It, It really is him. And, and we just kept coming back to, you know, listen, if we're going to do the sequel, we've got to have Craig Russell in it. So I came up with an idea. I said, look, what if we don't insure, you know, no insurance company is going to insure it, but what if we insure ourselves? If we get Craig to agree to have a, a liquor guard basically with him 24-7 to keep him from drinking, would the financiers agree to that and that's how we did it (laughs) and we got Craig to be on the straight and narrow for the duration of the shooting of the film and we pulled it off and it's really funny and it's really good and he does an amazing job in it and um and it was also one of the very first films uh it was about 1980 uh, I can't remember now mid 80s and it was one of the first films that actually mentioned the word AIDS and, and sort of dealt very frankly with that because one of the characters in it um, is, has come down with AIDS. And so, you know, on top of the funny part of it, it also, you know, was dealing with, with the reality of the, of the situation at the time. So I'm, I'm really proud to have been a part of that. And uh, it was, um, and it was just, you know, it was a great fun film to do and we also discovered a young guy who's in his early 20s named Jimmy James, who does the most incredible impersonations of, of Judy Garland and, um, and Billie Holiday and Marilyn Monroe. And uh, we had looked at the possibility of him playing the character, but he was just way too young because it was supposed to be an, an, an aging drag queen. But we ended up putting him in the film in another role, sort of the, uh, you know, all about Eve, the sort of young upstart who is giving, uh, giving the, the, the veteran star a run for money. And, uh, and so he got his first crack at, uh, you know, doing a movie with that. So it was, it was really fun. It's, it, it's a really good film. And it's, it's you know, it, I'd have to see it again. It's been a long while. But it, you know, it's a good solid sequel, and that doesn't happen as often as as people would like. But, yeah, but I definitely recommend. True. Well, thank well, you. I appreciate at, that. Uh, La Caja Foles, the first film is a semi-serious view of the gay relationship, and then in the yep. second one, how can we how can we do a sequel to this 
very gay relationship movie. I know. We'll bring in spies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, very often it goes so, right off the rails when number two comes around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I guess the next question to ask is, how did you get involved with Elvira and Haunted well, Hills and all that? <laughs> yes, I ended up directing her second film, Elvira's Haunted Hills. Well, this is how it happened. I, um, after my first film, Guilty as Charged, that we talked about with Rod Steiger, I was at a Hollywood party at the home of Terry Sweeney. And Terry Sweeney was the guy who, who, who was a regular on Saturday Night Live in the 80s, and he always did Nancy Reagan in drag. He was the first openly gay Saturday Night Live cast member. And he had, I knew him and his, his now husband, Lanier Laney, as I had gone to college with Lanier at the University of South Carolina. And I knew them when I was living in New York in the 80s, and I would go to tapings of Saturday Night Live and see the show. And Lanier and Terry were both writers on the show, and um, as well as Terry being a performer. And then years later, they were regular writers on Mad TV. But um, they had this party and went there, and I spotted Cassandra Peterson, who's Elvira, um, at the party, and I went over to Terry and I said, oh, my God, I am a huge fan of Elvira. You have to introduce me. So he took me over and introduced me, and he said, and Sam just directed recently a film called Guilty as Charged. And Cassandra went, oh, I saw that film. I love that film, and I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever do another Elvira film, I want you to direct it. And I was like, oh, my God, the, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> How many drinks have you had, and is this what happens at, at Hollywood parties? And, you know, what? Well, um, so then, I, you know, so a few years go by. I actually put her in a cameo role, not as Elvira, but um, as a country western bar bouncer um, in a film I did called Acting on Impulse that had Nancy Allen and, See Thomas Howell, Linda Fiorentino, and a whole bunch of, act, of, of recognizable people in it, and um, and so she had a great time with that, and we became you know kind of social friends and and all, and and I went to a taping she did of an Elvira uh, pilot that was going to possibly be a TV series, and so you know I I was hanging around her sort of as a friend and and. Uh, closeted groupie and uh, so several years go by and then she calls me up and she goes hey we finally have decided that since no one is going to finance another Elvira movie my husband and I are going to finance it ourselves and it's called Elvira's Haunted Hill we're uh, she said I'll be honest with you we're interviewing several directors but I definitely want to give you a shot so you you know will you come in and meet with us and I said of course so I go in and she hands me the script and she said now the script is a spoof of the Vincent Price Roger Corman Edgar Allan Poe movies of the 60s are you familiar with those and I said honey stand back (laughs) and I said here is Vincent Price's monologue at the climax of Pit and the Pendulum and this is what I said 
Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You are about to enter hell. Hell, the noble world, the infernal region, the abode of the damned, the place of torment, Gehenna, Naraka, the pit, and the pendulum, the razor edge of destiny. That's the condition of man, bound on an island from which he can never hope to escape, <laughs> surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And she looked at me like I was crazy, cocked her head, and said, you're hired. <laughs> that's literally how it happened. And I knew that monologue because uh, as a monster horror movie fanboy kid, uh, back in school when I was in, like, you know, maybe junior high school, there was an assignment to do a monologue uh, for from something like Shakespeare or whatever. And I said, could I do Edgar Allan Poe? And because Edgar Allan Poe was very, you know, academic, of course you can. Well, of course, then I went home and I transcribed from the reel-to-reel tape I had made off of TV of Pit and the Pendulum from the Richard Matheson script, <laughs> the Vincent Price's monologue, which probably had absolutely you know, nothing to do with Poe, but that's how I got away with it. And, and I memorized that thing, and I've known it all my life, and I swear to God I wasn't reading it off of anything when I recited it to you just now, but it, it got me <laughs> that directing gig. <laughs> and well, you we, do win because did... now Richard Matheson is taught in most literature classes. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> but, uh, but Elvira's Haunted Hills was the most fun I've ever had directing a movie. It was just such a dream come true to be able to spoof those films that I loved growing up. Cassandra was also a huge Vincent Price fan. House on Haunted Hill was the very first film she ever saw as a kid, and it, you know, obviously, you know, warped her mind forever. And she and both of us became friends of Vincent Price in real life when he was alive. And so we dedicated the film to him, and it was just it was just a labor of love all the way around. And we made it in Romania, in Transylvania, where, and I actually used the same. Uh, Romanian production designer who had done the Oblivion films and so it was going back over to Romania to do more filming and um, it, 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 we were able to design that you know, on a very tight budget that we never could have afforded to build here in America and, and uh, you know I sent over all the movies, the Corman films and everything else to the production designer and we very carefully tried to, to have an homage to those style of stats and it was it was just such a fun fun movie to do uh yeah the uh, Romanian guys at their peak were as great as the philippine guys of the 70s say that again i couldn't hear you the romanian guys that was created because of the full moon films were as good as the philippine crews that were created by all of the films shot by Roger yeah, Corman, Corman in the 70s. Yeah. They knew yeah, what exactly. to do. They knew how to do within where they were. And yeah. you didn't have to worry about things like that. Yeah. Well, at the, in the, when Corman did Pit in the Pendulum, he built the, the, on the Pit in the Pendulum set, he built the slab, the walls went up just so high, but then in the really wide shots, they would, they would complete the rest of the the set with matte paintings with you know and and so when we were going to do our version i told the production designer you know i explained all of that and he said oh well, we have some 
great matte painters from the old days. I'm going to find them, and we're, that's exactly what we'll do. And I said, perfect. So then I was doing all this long distance before we got over there. And then when I finally did get over there for the last few weeks of pre-production, the production designer, I immediately go and meet with him, and he said, well, I have good news and bad news. One, all of the matte painters have died. So we're not going to be able to do matte paintings like I thought. But come with me. And he said, the good news is this. And it opens up the door to this stage where he had built the pit and the pendulum set in its entirety from the bottom of the pit to the ceiling. And it was the most incredible. I just broke into tears. I mean, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. It was the size of like walking onto a James Bond set at Pinewood Studios. It was incredible. He had the Hieronymus Bosch murals on the walls. The entire pendulum was a working pendulum and everything, you know, the mechanics, everything had been done to specification. It was unreal. And, and, and then he took me to the castle interior sets where the staircase and, you know, all these incredible sets. I, I just couldn't believe what they were able to do on, on an incredibly low, 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 low budget. So that, that was really, really special. Did you ever uh, read the Fangoria series that the guy who played Castle Freak in Castle Freak, one of the last Romanian films that Band did, ever shot? He had like a diary of working on the film. No, I would love to read that though. I bet that's fascinating, and I bet well, I, I bet I know half the characters close in there. To the end, and Band had sent uh, who directed it? Carl directed Reanimator. Uh, uh, Stuart Gordon. Stuart Gordon. He sent him a telegram yeah. and said, we're not going to pay you. Finish up while you can. And then go. <laughs> oh so God. as soon as he got that, he walked up to uh, the guy who played Reanimator. Yeah. And said, do you have your plane ticket? Yes. Okay. Be ready to go at a moment's notice. I'm going to give you all of the film cans, and you will go and hide out with the film before bank can get a hold of it. And Susie said, we have to pay the crew, so since you're not sending us the money to pay them, we're going to tell them to take any piece of this ancient furniture in this castle as payment. <laughs> oh, my God. He got the money in two oh, days. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's good. That's that's great. Well, I'm we glad that you don't have lucky. any nightmare. Uh, Charles I did Band not have like any nightmares. The people work with him. I know. I did not have any nightmares working for Charlie. It was a it was a charmed period where, as I say, he had a deal with Paramount and the money was flowing, and. He gave me carte blanche to do what I wanted to do as long as I brought it in on schedule and on budget, and we did. And uh, I, I just couldn't have been happier. And he also, I also did a third film for him. I did the two Oblivion films, and then I went to Mexico and did a kid's film called Magic Island that was a time travel pirate fantasy and for the Moonbeam label, which was his sort of family division. Yeah. And uh, – and same experience there. You know, again, it was just 
on that Paramount money, that window of time when he had that, and then shortly afterwards, in fact, now that I think of it, uh, he had he had me. Um, we edited Oblivion One because he needed to release that, but he said, you know, we're going to just put Oblivion Two. We'll put all that footage on the back burner, and you go off and do Magic Island in Mexico, and then come back and you know edit Magic Island, and then once all those are done, then we'll then you can go in the editing room and do and finish up Oblivion Two because we'll we want to have a window you know of a year or so before we release that one. So by the time we got around to editing Oblivion 2, his the Paramount deal had fallen apart, and now he had no money. So I did have a slight experience where there was no money. And he, we had gotten Tino DiNaggio, the great composer who did – we were talking about earlier, who did the De Palma films, like Carrie and Dressed to Kill, and he also did the Nicholas Rogue film, Don't Look Now, and you know, incredible performance composer he had we had gotten him to do the music for oblivion it was a full orchestral score recorded in italy it was absolutely beautiful it was sort of an homage to Ennio morricone scores to you know the the spaghetti westerns good bad and the ugly and stuff like that and so um and i and so charlie said we're not going to be able to afford pino obviously for the second one so i'm going to have my brother a Richard Mann do it as a synthesizer score. Now, Richard, and he ended up doing um, Magic the score to Magic Island, and he, it was a terrific score, and he's a great composer. However, I was determined. I was like, we can't. He, the whole spirit of Oblivion is is so intertwined with that score that Pino did. I just can't imagine shifting gears stylistically. And I and I said to Charlie. Do you ever see the, uh, Richard Lester's Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers? Those were originally supposed to be one film, and they had Michelle Legrand did the score to the first one, which was an incredible score, and then the second one, they ended up getting Lalo Schifrin, the, the guy that did the Mission Impossible music back in the, in the for the 60s TV series, and did that great Mission Impossible theme. He's a fantastic composer, but it's not the same style as the first movie. And it always bugged me that, that they didn't get Michelle Legrand to do the second one. And so I pleaded with Charlie. He said, There's, we just have no money. There's no way. All right. So I'm editing the film, and I use Pino's original score as temp music. And I very carefully edited, you know, had, the, had our editor do great sound editing. And we, we've scored the entire second film with the score – and re-edited it all together and, and did, you know, just really beautiful job of it. And so I finally, I just went to Charlie and I said, hey, let's just recycle the score. <laughs> we'll use it. And that's what ends up happening. So when you see Oblivion 2, it's actually recycled score for the first one. <laughs> so I guess I did experience some of, uh, the, you know, the no money craziness of, uh, of working sometimes with Charlie and so I actually him. know if you watch the old Oders or Western TV series, that's the way they were shot. They used the same yeah. music themes and score. How did Dave Allen get involved as Oblivion? Was well, he involved he, you know, from he, the beginning? He, you know, he's the big great stop motion animation guy. 
And we had some stop motion scenes in it with like the giant scorpions and and uh and a few other things. But um he you know, he and his team of people that were working at Full Moon in Los Angeles, they they created and did all of the stop motion animation segments for that. And then David was doing a film called Primevals that um started shooting not long after Oblivion and it had Richard Joseph Paul who was the main cowboy in Oblivion. It had uh um uh Juliet Mills who was of course the sister of Haley Mills and she was in the nanny the professor back in the seventies and she was in it in Primeval and her husband, Maxwell Caulfield, was in Oblivion too. So there was a connection there as well. But they never, they, they never finished shooting, and Charlie ran out of money, and they had to stop production. And so Primevils never actually got completed. And then um, David Allen eventually died, and, you know, it's always been this sort of mythic thing to try to complete that film somehow. And I know there's been attempts to complete it, and I'm not even sure what's happened with that. It may have sort of been completed, or they may have released some kind of, you know, assembly of it. I'm not sure what it what happened. Know. You may know more than I do. I'm not sure Catacomb. about that either. Catacombs. Okay. What is Catacombs. it? Catacombs. Catacombs. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it, he used the footage that Dave Allen shot and added some stuff with uh, Maxwell Caulfield and stuff. Yeah. And huh. I've got to put it out on video. Out. Wow. It's in uh, one of the four packs that uh, Shout Factory put out. Huh. I've got to check that out. I, I'd be really, really interested in seeing that and. Yeah, David was a great guy, and they did incredible stop-motion stuff. I was so thrilled because I've always been a big stop-motion geek myself with Harryhausen and the original King Kong. and You know, all of us monster kids are into that. And it was just, you know, I was thrilled to be able to, to dip my toe a little bit into that world before it became, you know, completely obsolete. Now everything is, is you know, digital and digital effects and everything, which... I don't know, you know, I'm an, I'm nostalgic for the old style. <laughs> no, I agree with you. It's like the thing, uh, 2000, the thing remake to come out in the early 2000s. If you watch the trailers, they show all the practical monsters and effects, and they look good. Yes, I just. But then saw when the you watch thing. the movie, it's all CGI, and it just doesn't look good. Well, I I went to see John Carpenter's The Thing on a midnight show just like in a few months ago. Um, it was showing here, and it was you know it was a thirty-five millimeter film and everything, and and almost all of the effects in that movie are practical effects. There there's no CGI that I or if there is, very 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 minimal. No, it was way before CGI. I remember Tron was the yeah. first movie to use CGI effects and that was uh, yeah, exactly. after the thing and 
the thing with you know those effects looked fantastic. I was just marveling at how it hasn't dated. It really holds up well, and uh, you know it was, it was exciting to see that. And Pirate Island was the best reviewed of all of the Moonbeam films that Charles Band ever put out. Magic Island, you mean? Yeah, Magic Island. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, I was very, very proud of that. It had Zachary Ty Bryan, who was the kid from um, Home Improvement, and we had um, uh, French Stewart, who was on Third Rock from the Sun, and we had Matt, um, Andrew Divoff, who had played Red Eye in the Oblivion films. He played Blackbeard the Pirate, and it was it was just a really fun cast, and again, just... I, just having so much fun creating that world, you know. The movies that I do now mostly are Christmas movies for the Hallmark Channel and thrillers yeah. for Lifetime, and they're usually present day. We're using locations that we go out and find, you know, houses yeah. and stores and that sort of thing. And but these these other movies like Oblivion and Elvira's Haunted Hills and Magic Island, those things were, you know, we were creating everything from the ground up and building sets. So for the Oblivion films, when we got there, it was a cornfield. We tore down the cornfield and built that entire western town from the ground up. It's still there to this day. It is used on on western films and stuff. It was used uh, for that Kevin Costner miniseries, The Hatfields and the McCoys, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it, it was just, those experiences, I I have such nostalgia for because I don't get to I don't get to create stuff for the ground up anymore and, and I miss that. Carly, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think we need to to go somewhere I'm ask here. Ask a question, and... Carl, real quick. This is just for you. Wouldn't it okay. be great if uh, a group of gay fans of James Whale? Got together uh, and did an autobiographical film of him. <laughs> uh, yes, it would be wonderful. Yeah. How did yeah, you get to, How did you get to work on? Possibly, I think that'd be a dream project for you and Clive Barker and Bill. It was incredible. Yeah. We're talking, of course, about gods and monsters. Monsters. And I, I read the book that it was based on. It was called Father of Frankenstein by Christopher Bram. I read it and I was like, oh my God, if there was ever a movie that I want to direct, it's this one. And I contacted the writer and I said, listen, I don't have any money, but is there any way you'd give me a free option for a few months where I can try to take this around and see if I could get it made? And he said, well, a guy named Bill Condon just beat you to it a couple of weeks ago. And I said, oh, darn it. But I knew, I knew Bill. Um, I had met him socially. He, we had a mutual friend in Nancy Allen, and I had met him at one of Nancy Allen's parties. And so I called him up. Uh, actually, I didn't have his number. I called up Nancy, and I said, give me Bill's number. I have to talk to him. So <laughs> I got his number and called him up, and I said, hey, uh, you know, anything I can do to help you, man. I'm just such a fan of James Whale. The Bride of Frankenstein is my favorite movie of all time. Um, you know, anything I can do to help, let me know. And uh, and by the way, have you thought of Ian McKellen for the role of James Whale? And 
He said, oh, my God, you, you totally read my mind. I just sent McKellen a copy of the book to read to see if, he, if it you know, strikes his fancy. And I said, great. Let's hope, let's hope, let's hope. So then about a year goes by, and I was uh, directing a film uh, for a company called Here. Well, it was uh, Region Entertainment. It was called Kiss of a Stranger. And uh, it was with Mariel Hemingway and Diane Cannon and David Carradine. And um, I heard I was at we were in pre-production and I was in the production offices of this production company. And I heard the head of the company, Paul Collishman, in the hallway mention Father of Frankenstein, that book. I leaped up out of my desk, ran out into the hall, and I said, Father Frankenstein, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, well, we got this script from a guy named Bill Condon, and Ian McKellen is attached, and they're asking if we want to get involved to as a, the production company to help get this thing up and running. And I said, oh, my God, yes, you have to do this movie. I have to be one of the producers, and you just have to do this. And Paul was saying, yeah, the only thing we're a little concerned about is that it do you think audiences are going to, or critics are going to say that this is sort of a, an older gay man who's coming on to this younger straight guy? And is it going to be considered like a dirty old man kind of thing? And I said, just, just let me show you the reviews of the book. And I went home that night. I kept a file of the reviews from the New York Times book review and the wall street journal and the New Yorker magazine and all these, um, you know, high-powered reviews, and I brought them in, and I said, you read through these reviews, and you tell me if anybody took took this story that way, and of course, none of them had, and they were all rave reviews about the book, and so I single-handedly convinced them to not dismiss it on that that basis, and I just, you know, badgered them to get this going, and um, so then, you know, luckily it did happen and they got other partners of course to help finance it and Showtime was one of them and it was actually going to be a Showtime original movie and not even be released theatrically but um, there was a clause in the deal that would allow us to take the film around to festivals and if there was theatrical interest from a distributor Showtime would allow it to be released theatrically if they were bought out for a million dollars, so it was all these hoops that that had to go through. But we somehow managed to get Lionsgate to release it. It got Showtime paid off, and it came out. And even Lionsgate didn't have the faith in it that we did. And thank God, it only they were only going to open it in a few theaters. But the week that they opened it was the week that the National Board of Review announced their awards, and that was the first of the, they kick off the award season every year. And the National Board of Review gave it Best Picture, Best Actor, Ian McKellen, Best Supporting Actress, Lynn Redgrave, Best Director, Bill Condon, and Best Screenplay, Bill Condon. It totally swept the awards. And it, and it, and suddenly Lionsgate realized that they had an award, you know, award season movie. 
and they uh, they got their ads and gear and started to really promote it and gave it a big award season campaign, and it ended up winning the Golden Globe for Lynn Redgrave, and it won the Oscar for Best Screenplay by Bill Condon, Best Adapted Screenplay, and was of course nominated for Oscars for um, for Ian McKellen and. Uh, Lynn Redgrave and you know it was just this dream little project that nobody really had a huge amount of faith in but um, but it you know we we managed to uh, beat the odds but it was it was the most incredible project to work on Um, when I talk about being able to create sets from the ground up this was the most thrilling set it it even it even topped my Elvira the Haunted Hills that story because we were able to recreate the Bride of Frankenstein laboratory set um, from the ground up for a flashback scene of Whale directing on that set and we even found the original lab electrical equipment that had been used in the original Frankenstein of Bride of Frankenstein that same equipment had been located by Mel Brooks and he had used it in Young Frankenstein so I mean you know, the hair on the back of my neck was just standing on air uh, to be able to stand on that set, and I took great pride in making sure that it was that it was accurate. And if you are an old school horror fan, and since we're all in quarantine, that, that's the great triple feature he just mentioned right there. Right, Young Frankenstein and Gods of Monsters. There you go, mm-hmm. and and it, it's it's it was just. Such a charm project, and so incredible to work with someone like Ian McKellen. And um, it was it was interesting. Ian, McK- you know, Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. Okay, Brendan Fraser back then was coming off of, you know, doing silly comedies, and Ian McKellen was this great Shakespearean actor. You know, oh, you know, we, Brendan's going to be the cut up, and Ian's going to be the serious guy, and it was the complete opposite. Brendan was very intimidated to be working with someone as great as Ian. So he's constantly in his trailer learning his lines and, and f- focused on giving the best performance. While, while Ian McKellen is on set cutting up, telling jokes, joking around, you know, Bill would call action and, you know, Ian would stand the character on a dime. And, uh, and it, it was just so amazing to watch that. But, um, but Ian was a kick. We had during pre-production, we wanted to see the actual house that James Whale lived in, and sadly had 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 died and then committed suicide in the swimming pool. And um, and we found the owners, the, the current owners of the house. They weren't going to let us shoot there, but we wanted to bring everybody there to sort of feel the the, the spirit of the place and to see what it was like. And the production designer wanted to see it, and the location manager wanted to see it, so they could find a house that would that would approximate it. And so Ian wanted to see it, and he had just gotten in from London. We had I hadn't met him yet; most of us hadn't met him. And we were there waiting in the driveway before we go knock on the door of the house until Ian gets there, and he's a few minutes late. Well, he comes roaring up in this rented Jaguar sports car, and he hops out, literally, he doesn't even open the door. He literally leaps out over the door, and he is wearing these hip-hugger, bell-bottom pants that are made of 
patent leather that is then the color is baby powder blue. <laughs> and he goes, Sorry I'm late. How are you, darling? And and we were laughing so hard. It was just it was the most hilarious introduction to him and I'll never forget it. That image of him hopping out of that Jaguar in those pants. <laughs> How did that feel? This is to the both of you that the book and the movie really started, well, definitely for you, Carl, during the time when you first discovered the Universal Films with the shock package. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and really it goes back even further than that because it goes back to being in Pittsburgh and Chiller Cedar and Chili Billy Cardelli and, and – uh, uh, just seeing, I remember seeing the original Frankenstein, and that was the movie. And I was young. I must have been five or six years old, but it's the first real memory of a movie I have. And it's like, yeah. I remember crying my eyes out at them, literally crying that they would treat the monsters that way. I, it's and, same and, with and, me. What you're describing is happened to me it happened to so many of us monster kids we recognized that the the so-called monster was not the monster he was this he was this pitiful creature and the real monster was the doctor right and and, and the thing about it too I, I i'm sure you know growing up as an lgbtq kid you could you could grasp onto that for me well i, I was uh, in I was in braces. I had cerebral palsy. And so I was wow. the outsider because of that. Yeah. And to see, it, it is. To see how people treat theory. the outsider. Yeah. 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 But anybody, you know, all of us, all of us in our own way can identify with that, whether you've been bullied, whether, you know, anytime you've been an outsider for anything. I mean, we're all considered geeks because we like horror films. We, you know, we, you know, goth kids are are considered outsiders. I mean, drag queens are outsiders. You know, we're, everybody has a a way to identify with that creature in those Frankenstein films, and it's it's a deep, deep, deep rooted psychological thing for me, especially, and and it sounds like for you and and so many of us. Yeah. It just uh, it's it really is something that we identified with. I, I have a story to tell you, and, and, and I, I have to do this, Stephen. So forgive me. But oh, don't worry. I was part I was part of a uh, um, community theater group, and uh, they did the play Frankenstein. And I'm six foot mm-hmm. three, and and so like I was cast as Frankenstein. Now in the play. The, the creature doesn't come until right at the end of the first act, and that you see you see the creature in in, in uh, silhouette, and uh, um, I do a big growl. So anyway, that's all it is in the first first act. So that happens, and I'm backstage. We're doing a dress rehearsal for a bunch of kids from the children's home, and the stage manager come, comes back to me and says. Well, you made an impression. We have three puddles out there. <laughs> oh my god! Oh and my so, god! So yeah, when I played when I played the creature, 
it got all that that angst that I had when I was young out. Wow. It was it, it was a wonderful thing. Really yeah. was. No, that's great. That is great. <laughs> but yes, I I did produce three puddles. I'm very proud yeah. of that fact. <laughs> and another thing that's about true. God and Monsters is that was one of the first films I've seen that took the genre seriously. Period. Yeah. No, it's true. I'd it's say we wouldn't got. I mean, Ed Wood was good, but even it, it was a bit of a comedy. But Gods and Monsters, yeah. we wouldn't have films like Dolomite is My Name, uh, some of the other films that take on the genre but actually treat it seriously. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I definitely think it was it was unique in that way. Well, one one of the films of that type would be Night and Day, the Truffaut film, Night for Day. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's a great film. That's a wonderful film. Yeah, we wouldn't even be here today, I think, if it wasn't for, well for you guys, the shock package and me, when Universal very slowly started releasing the monster films on the VHS. Yeah. Well, of course, when I was growing up, back at the, you know, Pleistocene era, um, but, you know, I was born in 1956, so when I was old enough to really start watching these horror films, well, (laughs) luckily my parents let me, um, you know, it was late... 50s, early 60s, and that's when Screen Gems was marketing this whole package of universal horror films called Shock. And all the local stations, syndicated stations, would buy this package of films, and they'd show them, you know, one, one a week. And it, they'd, many, in many areas, they'd get, you know, they'd have create their own horror hosts. And, um, and, you know, we had in our town Shock Theater, and it came on on Saturday afternoons around 2 or 3 o'clock. And every week I was absolutely glued to them. And they and that's where I got introduced to all of the old Universal horror stuff. And it was, uh, it was just so influential of my upbringing from such an early impressionable age. My dad owned movie theaters which was the other half of my influence. And uh, so I would go, you know, see the newer horror films coming out that would be playing first run at his theaters. And it included those Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies, like Pit and the Pendulum, and, uh, and Hammer films and all of those. I was seeing first run at my dad's theater. And, uh, and then when I got maybe when I was about 12 years old, I started programming Saturday morning kitty matinees of horror film series, and any horror film that I hadn't seen or missed or wanted to see again, I'd bring them back every Saturday morning to play at my dad's theater, and and we, you know, programmed that. But I made sure that the movies would be done in time for kids to get home to see Shock Theater on TV that afternoon. <laughs> So if you were well, you, if you were a monster kid in Asheville, North Carolina in those days, you know you had it was, it was it, you had a lot of stuff to choose from. It was great. 
Yeah, you you sound a lot like what happened to me because I'm only a couple years younger than you. I was born in '58, and and yeah. uh, so so it was it, for me. It was uh, it was Chiller Cedar in in, in uh, Pittsburgh, and then of course there you Zachary go. and that and all that. Oh yeah. And then when we moved when we moved to Bradford, Pennsylvania, my father bought a music store there, and. Uh, one of our customers was uh, the person that ran the local drive-in. And so oh, nice. he says, hey, I could use his son to, to, to put in reels and that. So I started working at a, a drive-in when I was 14. It was like immediately it was like Russ Meyer and stuff like that. There you go. You know, and then, so and, then, cool. and then catching stuff up on early uh, HBO. So, yeah, same thing. You and I'm the baby. I was born in 1970. My local thing was the Unknown Zone, and it had the AIP Amicus package. So we got The Beast Must Die, the Two Fives films, Cry of the Bandit, yep. uh, oh, the wow. Two Landed Time Forgot films. Uh, yeah, yeah. Asylum. Exactly. Yeah. Well, all those asylums scared the crap out of me the most when I was a kid. Yeah. Especially well, that Carl first and I story with grew the... up with famous monsters of Filmland magazine. I'm sure you were collecting all of those. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was at the end of them, but I, yeah. I, the first horror magazine I ever got was the one where it had King Kong versus Jaws, or as they called it, Jaws versus Ape. <laughs> exactly. I remember that. No, it's a, it was. It, it, we all had these. And you probably, Carl, you probably had the Aurora model kits of the monsters, like I had. I was never much into the kits, to be honest. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Uh, but but I always. I what I did is a lot of the stuff that I had were you know uh, magazines. So like the the Twilight Zone magazine. One of the magazines that I loved was Cinefantastique. I was a reader. Yeah, in fact, yeah, I wrote so. for some fantastic briefly. I love that magazine. Oh, I miss that magazine so much. It's not even funny. Oh, yeah, really how dare they give honest reviews? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what killed them. Unfortunately, yeah. well, but it's it's a great it was a great magazine, and 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 I so I was. Story, into that I have a story show. about that. With okay, Fantastic, I, I, well, when I, when I first um, bamboozled my way into uh, working with De Palma, I was in college at the University of South Carolina, and I got Brian out of the blue to come. I, I organized a film festival in his honor on campus, got him to come, and that's how I met him. Well, the following summer, he was going to be doing the film The Fury with Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and Fiona Lewis and everybody, a- Amy Irving. And it was, um, and he, and so I called him up and I said, listen, I'm going to be between my junior and senior year in college. Can I please come up and work on it during the summer when you're shooting in Chicago? And he said, sure, come on up. So then I immediately called Fred Clark, the editor of Spit of Fantastique, and I said, hey, you did this incredible cover story on Carrie that Brian De Palma loved. 
will you commit to doing a cover story on the Fury, and I'll do a journal on the making of the film, and I'll be right there on set, and I'll be, you know, your your on-set journalist for Cinefantastique. And he said, yes, do it. And I told Brian, and Brian was like, so cool. That's great. I love Cinefantastique. So I go up there, and then Brian, you know, gives me carte blanche, and I do one-on-one interviews with Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and everybody involved, including getting a phone interview. And, and including a phone interview with the composer, John Williams. I mean, you name it. It was this incredible entree. And so then I write up my thing, send it into Senate Fantastic, this whole journal on the making of it. And, they, and Fred keeps putting it off. He gets other things that take precedence, like he saw Star Wars. And suddenly he did a double issue on Star Wars, and the fury got pushed off. But I did get him to to run my interview with Amy Irving from the set of the Fury as sort of a teaser in the in the Star Wars double issue. So it was still all happening and it was being teased and everything. Well, then the Fury opened, and and Fred Clark saw it and hated it. <laughs> so now he. He, he he said, I'm not going to give you the cover anymore, and he put Hans Salter on the cover of the issue, the composer who's done some of the universal horror stuff. Not a very uh, commercial cover, if you ask me. Uh, and then he cut down my journal on the making by half, and it still ran, but it wasn't you know as big of a spread as it was going to be. And I had to go with my tail between my legs into De Palma and tell him that not only was it not going to be a cover, but my journal on the making of the film was going to be less. And they're probably, if they do run a review of the movie, it's probably not going to be good. And I, I thought for sure I was going to get fired over that. But you know, De Palma just laughed and was, you know, well, these those the break. And uh, he didn't, he didn't really care. But I was, I was a nervous wreck about it, but it also, um, you know, it, it taught me that, you know, if you're going to be in the business and you're working for these people, that it really is a conflict of interest. And so that kind of killed my writing for, I I didn't want to write anymore because I was, I ended up becoming De Palma's full-time assistant. And, uh, you know, I, I could have done, I could have asked, to do um, on the making of dress of dress to kill or you know things like that but i i had had such a bad experience the other time i i, I just kind of said you know what i need to hang up my my journalism uh if i'm going to be in the business and uh and i really only came back to it you know decades later when um when the editor of Little Shop of Horrors magazine came to me and asked me if I wanted to write about Frankenstein, the true story, which I, you know, got that got me back into it. And now I just love writing about, you know, the films that I love. And, and it's not a conflict of interest if it's, if it's something I didn't have anything to do with. So it's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Carl stopped listening as soon as you said, then I did an interview with John Cassavetes, right, Carl? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm a Cassavetes fanatic. Yeah, he was yeah. he was magnificent. I mean, the big you know the main thing that he told me was that you know he he did roles in films like The Fury, 
where he would, you know, his agent would would hold firm on getting big money, and he would use that money to finance his own uh, low budget films that he directed we and wrote. As we like to call it, the Cassavetti's School of Film Financing. Yeah. Yeah. lady skills no, building. Exactly. It's yeah. like it's, it's like when people are like, why was John Huston in all those crappy horror films in the seventies? And I was just on a horror forum, and I just said, yep. "Fat City, Wise Blood." Yeah. <laughs> you know. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Nope. The, and you know, and yet, even though. You know, he Cassavetes could have phoned it in. He didn't. You know, he he was totally engaged and totally trying to make it the very best it could be. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I I respected him so much as a as an actor as well as being a director. Yeah. What's that one that we're going to be doing within the next month or so, Carl? The Elaine May film. Oh, Mikey and Nikki. Yeah. Mikey oh, and Nikki. Doing a lot of watch of that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. For sure. But yeah, I'm glad well, that you got back into uh just being a fan again and writing as a fan. <laughs> Cuz that's what my I, problem I, with a lot of the young it, ones is they don't write it with the love and the wide eye of just being a fan. Yeah. No, it's true. I did it uh like, an inter a, a a huge interview with Elvira for Scream magazine. Uh last year and won the Rondo Award for that for Best Interview of the Year. It was so much fun to do. And, uh, you know, that that's worth checking out. And, it, and she's on the cover, and it's issue number 36. There are, two, there are two screen magazines. One spelled the regular way, and that was from England. But this is the American screen magazine spelled S-C-R-E-E-M. And if you want to get a hold of a copy of that, it's issue number 36, and go to their website. Uh, you don't have to go like that. We're, I love Daryl, and I've been been friends with him at, for about eight or nine years. And only reason I went to Monster Bash the first time is Daryl's like, you got to come to Monster Bash. You'd like it. I'm like, okay. Uh. And did you go? Yeah. Oh yeah, I love Monster. Now Bash. you can keep them away. Yeah, you go to Monster Bash. Yes, I've been I've been three times. I absolutely love it. I had I, for the first time now I had a table I know there. I recognize your face. I've seen you there. You might have seen me there. I had a table there last. Was it? Yeah, it was last year, last June. And uh, it was the first time I had a table. Remember that guy that used to walk around on Friday and Saturdays with a Wings Chop T-shirt on and handed out samples of the magazine? Vaguely. That's was it. that you? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> <That's, that's... laughs> that's hilarious. No, I went there um, this past year, and I was I was really excited to see Martine Beswick because she had done a voice for me in Magic Island. She was, there was a three-headed tiki god, and the three voices for the three heads were Martine Beswick, which, uh, for those who don't know, she was, uh, she was Sister Hyde, and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, and she did a bunch of other Hammer films. She was in One Million Years B.C., and, and wrestles with Raquel Welch, and 
she was a Bond girl in Thunderball and Russia with Love. She's one of the few that did two Bond films. Um, anyway, she was there, and it was great to see her again. But those other two tiki head gods in in my film Magic Island, the other voices were Isaac Hayes, who we've been talking about, and the third one was Terry Sweeney, the guy from Saturday Night Live who introduced me to Elvira. So there's all these weird connections that tie everything together. But <laughs> but it was, uh, it was really who fun was to see Martine again. from Whisper to Scream, Carl? We had him on the show. Jeff Burr. Was, yeah, we had oh, Jeff yeah, Burr on the right? show for about three minutes. Uh, all him and Carl's like, Martina Beswick. Ah, yes. ah. No, no, yeah, no, not yep, Martina yep, Beswick. No, 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 not that we didn't go there, okay? Yeah. But it was Susan Tyrell. Oh, Susan Tyrell, yeah. It just oh, like yeah. <laughs> Cavemen grunting for like three minutes. Oh, ah, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's she hilarious. was great. And that's another one that's underseen from a whisper yeah. to a screen. No, that's a really good film. That that should be seen more. I'm 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 supposed to be at Monster Bash again this year. I have my table. I have all my reservations, but I don't. Yeah, we haven't heard a word on that yet. But since it's in June, they yeah. can wait. Yeah, they can wait to make a decision. But I'm I'm having my doubts. This uh, this coronavirus mess that we're in is, is pretty serious so I don't know that it's going to all be cleaned up by June yeah well we'll have to see take it take it day by day that's all you can do that's you know, all we that, can do you know, just be vigilant everybody stay stay, stay quor- you know quarantine yourself in your house that's the, you know we can that's the only way we're going to get the curve to flatten and to shorten the amount of time that we're all tied up with this with this mess, if we're if we're not taking it seriously, it's going to spread, and we're going to be what's happened in Italy and some of these other places where it's just been really, really devastating. And if you're worried about getting uh, a lot of these indie filmmakers paid, well, if they have their movie on streaming and they offer it to set the buy to rent, rent. But if their movies exactly. are all on Tubi, like Oblivion is. Uh, I don't know if you get a cut of it, but every filmmaker that every time you watch a movie on Tubi, they give the filmmaker a cut. Yeah, unfortunately, no, I don't get a cut of anything that I've done. (laughs) (laughs) Most everything I've done, I've done non-union. So, yeah, no, I just kind of get my fee. That's it. uh, Tell us a little bit before we go about what you're doing now for Hallmark and how did you get involved in that? We, we've always, uh, I, I read an article a couple of days ago. The Buffalo just gave Fred Olin Ray and Chris Ray the keys to the city for all the yes. production work that they brought up the, the Buffalo because of the Hallmark channel. So, exactly. It's like no, kind of music. And I know those guys so well. Fred, I've, I've worked with, and uh, and Chris just produced one of my uh, one of my Hallmark Christmas movies this past year. And uh, we were going to even do it in Buffalo, but all the crews and every everything that he was that he normally uses there were working on a Quiet Place two that was shooting in Buffalo, and we had to we had to go to Utah to get the film done. But um, 
anyway, it's it, it's just, they're really fun to make, and uh, you know they're predictable scripts and all that kind of thing. But I, you know, it's it's great. I, I I'm in a situation now. Um, I'm 63 and. I don't have to go looking for work. They actually call me <laughs> because I bring these things in on schedule and on budget and make them look a hell of a lot better than there's any right to look on the budgets we have. And um, I just, I enjoy the hell out of it. And I've been doing, you know, four, five, even six a year of, wh- of whether it's Hallmark Christmas movies, Lifetime thrillers, um, they're, they're, just so much fun to go do and very quick you know they're usually 12 to 14 day shooting schedules and uh and it's pretty much in and out i don't get involved in the scripts i don't want to be involved too much too much time too many rewrites too much development hell which i hate so they i just tell them contact me when you're greenlit ready to go i go in for about 10 days to two weeks before shooting for prep and then shoot it, turn in my director's cut, wash my hands of it, walk away, and move on to the next. And when I, in between gigs, and I'm writing my labor of love articles on horror movies or writing books on on this kind of stuff, and that's you know that's my life. I I couldn't be happier. Where I don't have to go out and look for work. I don't have to deal with development hell. I've given up trying to get passion projects off the ground because they were just, you know, one, a thousand too many times that, that my, you know, soul got crushed over things that didn't get off the ground and you spend so much time and not getting paid. And it's just, it's just not worth it to me. I'd rather spend that time writing about Frankenstein, the true story, or doing extras for the Blu-ray for Frankenstein, the true story, than to be, you know, trying to, to get projects off the ground for films that many of which would never end up happening. So, oh, I that, will say you know, that, honestly, I squeed like a little girl as soon as I seen that announcement. It was like, Frankenstein, <laughs> true story on Blu-ray. Wow! Yay, yay. Well, I, I'm the happiest monster kid on the planet. I feel feel like I've, you know, brought this film out, out, you know, brought it back from the dead because it was pretty much forgotten about it for a long time. And because yeah. it's so long, because it's three hours, it's hard, you know, it's hard to program for TV. It's hard to, it was it was impossible to put on VHS. They, they put the two-hour butchered, theatrical release that had gone out in Europe and that, you know, I can't even bear to watch that. It's so terrible. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really good that this has happened, that it's come out on Blu-ray. There's only one now, uh, Holy Grail title for me of the seventies TV horrors that hasn't been out yet. And that's Harvest Home. I would kill for Harvest Home to that, come out. That is, that is a really good one. You're right. That needs to come out for sure. Now, I, I, want, I, I mentioned one story that I, that I want to tell before we run out of time, and that is when we were talking early on, when I had my fanzine bizarre back in, when I was a teenager and I got my parents to send me to England to interview people, I, I had already interviewed Christopher Lee through the mail. I had done a questionnaire for one of my early issues of Bazaar, and so I – I kind of knew him as a fan, and we corresponded regularly. 
And so when I when I got when when I got my parents to agree to send me over there, I immediately wrote to Christopher Lee and I said I really want to meet you in person and interview you in person for another issue. Um, will you meet with me? And he wrote back and said, yes, as soon as you get here, call me at this number and blah, blah, blah. So I called him when I got over there, and he invited me to lunch at Pinewood Studios. I go out there, and he is on his lunch break from Man with the Golden Gun. So we have lunch at the commissary, and then after lunch, he, he said, listen, they broke early. So they're not going to be coming back for a while. Do you want to um, have a tour of the Bond set? <laughs> so, so I get a private personal tour of the James Bond sets for that movie by Christopher Lee. And we're walking around. He takes me through his lair, the Scaramanga's lair. And there's right, one I know corridor. Exactly. Yep. And there's this one corridor where the walls are lined with behind glass of a collection of butterflies that are all pinned up in rows. And I said, and I was looking at them, I was fascinated, and I said, oh, my God, they've gone to all this detail. Are these butterflies real? And Christopher turns to me and he goes, Sam, this is a James Bond movie, not a Hammer film. Of course they're real. (laughs) And the way he said hammer film, his nostrils flared. It was like he was talking about the, you know, the crap on the bottom of his shoe or something. He was, you know. Well, the he, he was, how many of the hammer films that he just looked at the script and said, not saying a word, not saying a word, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, to his, you know, he, he always wanted to work with the big boys. And to his credit, he did just that. Not only, you know, did he do a James Bond film and the Three Musketeers with Richard Lester, but, you know, he went on to work with Spielberg in 1941 and Peter Jackson and all the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars with, you know, with George Lucas and Tim Burton movies and you name it. He worked with all of the big guys and Scorsese and Hugo, for crying out loud. Yeah. Um, yeah. What 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 is ironic about all of this, of course, is that every single one of those directors that I just mentioned fell in love with Christopher Lee <laughs> during their young days, watching him in Hammer films, is playing Dracula or whatever, and you know, it, just, it cracks me up that he that he was always a little snooty and a little embarrassed by his horror film career and yet it's really what what was the springboard for him. Except for one. And that's the What's film that? where I first really fell in love with him as an actor. Yeah, Private Life I know where you're going. The night, it, was the, it was the 1972 one put out by British Lion. What would, oh, uh, Horror Express? No. No. Wicker Man. The Wicker, the Wicker Man. Man. Oh, The Wicker Man. Of course. Of course. I love that movie. So good. So good. So good. <laughs> yeah. It was we had. I got to go well, with this story real quick. We had uh, John Allen Simon on uh, as one of our guests. And, and John uh, was responsible, basically, for saving 
that movie and and getting us the Corman print of it so that you had the full uh, 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 uncut version of it. Uh, and and I just absolutely adore that film. I love yeah, the Wicker a, Man. It's a, it's a great film, and it also in the Wicker Man is Ingrid Pitt, who is a, became a really good friend of mine. I interviewed her by mail, same way with Christopher Lee, and then when I went to London, I met her in person, came to London the second time, met her in person, and then when she did the Famous Monsters convention in 1975, she got me to be her aide-de-camp for the weekend, and so I spent the whole weekend with her, sort of helping her and being her bodyguard and sitting with her for the autograph lines, and it was so much fun. And she was just a doll, absolutely incredible woman. My favorite Ingrid Pitt story from The Wicker Man was when they were filming the scene up on the hill, and Edward Woodward was standing there, and it's like they'd done filming a scene, and the three aides rushed into the three women with blankets. Britt Eklund took her blanket and wrapped it around and went, thank you. And then I forget who the second woman was. Diane Salento. Diane Salento. Yeah, Diane Salento took it and just put it on. And Ingrid Pitt said, do they have time to put blankets on? No, then I don't have time. Piss off. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But um, I forgot. I, I, I forgot to finish finish my story real quick. Uh, at the finish end, your story. Then Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee on the set of Man of the Golden Gun. Then he had he asked if I wanted to stay the rest of the afternoon to watch him shoot. I did. I met Roger Moore, Britt Eklund, Maud Adams, the director Guy Hamilton, and Herve Villachez, who played yeah. his his <laughs> tattoo or you know his tattoo on. Um, we the love him. Man of the don't have to oh so at the end of the day, he, uh, Christopher offers me a ride back to London in the studio show for Rolls Royce, and I said, sure. So I hop in the back seat and, and the fold-down, and I sit in the fold-down seat facing the back, and on the back seat is Christopher Lee and Irving Villages sitting side by side. Now, Christopher Lee, you know, is 6'6", six, six. Irving Villages is like 2'3". Herve is so drunk. And he starts telling us these stories about all of the prostitutes that he's hired since he's come to London and going into graphic detail as to what he's done with every one of them. And Christopher Lee starts to laugh hysterically. I mean, literally, like, doubled over in hysterics. And I'm sitting there laughing. I can't believe that I'm 17 years old watching Dracula, you know, busting a gut over nasty stories that Herve Village has is telling him. And we finally dropped Christopher off at his house on Cadogan Square. I just remember I'm looking at the back window of the roll as we drive away, and he was still holding, holding on to the gate, hustled over, just cackling. It was it was the funniest thing. I, I, I mean, and you just don't think of Christopher Lee that way. <laughs> no, that's nice. That's nice. So just uh, let hold on, Steve. Just to let everyone know, we're going to be going into overtime here uh, briefly. Yeah. Okay. But I've told on the story before. My favorite Hervey Village story was uh, Danny Elfman was walking on the set of Forbidden Zone to do his uh, Minnie the Moocher scene. Yeah. 
and he walked in and said hi to Joe Spinell. Then all of a sudden, Susan Tyrell was walking up with Hervé Villachez under one arm, and he was like, you fucking bitch, put me down, put me down, damn you. <laughs> and then she took Hervé and banged his head twice against the wall. Oh, my God. Then while he's still cursing, walked off the set. Danny was sitting there with his jaw dropped. And Joe looked at him and said, it's normal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That is classic. Oh, it is. It is. And, And if you know anything about Susan Tyrell, it's classic Susan Tyrell, too. Yeah. Oh, sure. Her and her and love story could make a movie. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. No kidding. Without a doubt. And as we're going, uh, yeah, go to Scream Magazine. S C R E E M. S C R E E M. Yeah. Get the Get his uh, interview he talked about. And yeah. little. Little, little, shop of horrors. little Shop of Horrors. And Shop is spelled S-H-O-P-P-E. Don't forget that when you type it in. But, uh, LittleShopOfHorrors.com, and it's issue 30, 38, and it's the uh, Frankenstein, the True Story uh, issue. It's totally devoted to that. And then check out the uh, the new Blu-ray from Shout Factory on Frankenstein, the True Story. But go to DarkDelphi.com to get an autographed version. You will not exactly. be in an and you'll be getting it from a great director, but you'll be getting it from someone who will possibly love the film as much or more than you do. <laughs> exactly. And in these days where we're sequestered and looking for stuff, this Frankenstein the True Story, you're going to get almost eight hours worth of entertainment <laughs> with one Blu-ray because the movie's three hours, then you got to watch it again with my audio commentary, so that brings it up to six hours, and then there's uh, uh, almost two hours of these other three interviews on there. So it's, it's quite the <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for directing the movies, but more importantly, thank you for being as big a fan as you are. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Fanboy on the planet, and, and, and I'll, I absolutely love what I do, and uh, I just I, I love it. I hope we'll get. I hope that Monster Bash will be able to go on, and, we'll, and I hope you'll get to come up again this year. But if it's yeah. not this year, then definitely next year for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks so Very much, good. Carl and Steve. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. And we really appreciate you having uh, being on as a guest, Sam. It, yeah. it was a pleasure, a true pleasure. Great, great. Well, send me a link to this, and I'll promote it on my social media. And uh, and I really appreciate well, you having it. I already put it on your wall earlier today. Good. <laughs> a link to this. <laughs> and you can get this Excellent. at any of your fine property, any place you can get a podcast. Look up KSDAD Radio because I don't want to change over 400 links. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> exactly. Now, we've been doing this for a while, Sam. It's almost like seven yeah. years now you and I have been doing this, right? 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's the same thing. People ask me, like, why do you still have an AOL account? Why is your email address AOL.com? You're such a you're you're just telling people how old you are, and it's because I don't want to have to change over all of my contacts. I don't want to have to try to, to find people that I haven't heard from in ten years to give them a new email address. <laughs> there you go. Agreed. And thank you for producing the show, Carl. You're really getting the hang of this. <laughs> well, you know, once you get on there, you don't do anything, actually. You just talk on the phone. So I think I could do this. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right, Jen. Well, this has been fun. So hang in there. Be safe. Be healthy. Let's get through this crisis together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, right. thank you very Take much, care. Sam. Bye. All right. Take thank care. And for additional content, especially if you are a Twilight Zone fan, what do we have in the DL archives? Uh, the DLN archives, Deviant Legion, uh, we just did a show uh, this past Friday on Twilight Zone uh, with Adam Ferenz and Alan Bryan and myself. And uh, we're uh, we're planning actually uh, on Tuesday uh, we're going to get a small bit of the Carl's Cavern back. It's been a while since I've gotten on, but we're going to do a quick show on DLN just to uh, uh, get us back into uh, swing of things. And it's just going to be like announcements and how things are going and so on and so forth. And then we'll get some things planned for uh, Carl's Cavern. But that's what we have right now. And for Watch This Week, we don't know what's going to go on this week. All I know is that we probably will do a show. That's going to be what, Tuesday? Or when do you want to do that? Uh, Well, not Tuesday since you're doing your show on Tuesday, Binkus. Right. Well, my show, yeah. Let's do it Wednesday or Thursday because Wednesday I'm not teaching anymore until yeah, we'll this thing is over. when you're not working this week. Yeah, which is basically every day. Yeah. All Carl knows yep. is that he sticks his head out of his window every 30 seconds so he can make sure that the theme song from Escape from New York isn't playing outside. Because if it does, that's when he's going to panic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And thank you all for listening, and thank you all for staying in. Thank you. Absolutely. And listen to podcast. I'll throw Mr. K and play it, and after that's over, we can say good night. Well, we've already said good night. All right, here we go. Good night. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Civic virtue if it reached up and bit you in the ass. 
did I hurt your feelings? The Magneto's right. There's a war coming. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. You sure you're on the right side? Hasta la vista, baby.